Tonight, we're going to talk about the case for civil disobedience. What do we do when government goes bad? I'm not an expert. I'm not a prophet in the sense that I can foretell the future. Only the Lord knows what will happen. I do believe that we can look at church history and look at the history of nations around us and civilizations and be able to judge and gauge patterns. I do think, and again, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I don't want to be reactionary. I don't want to get anyone tonight up in arms or I'm not a conspiracy theorist about anything. So I'm not that way about our government. But I will say that if human history plays out, if the course of America and our, our nation and, and our government and our system continues to go, at least in the direction that it seems that it is, with the rise of other non-Christian religions really having a foothold in our country, I think if you do some research about Great Britain even and, and France and several European countries where those that are followers of other religions have gained seats of authority and power, there in the British Parliament is one example. And the rise of not just Islam radical Islam, there is a strong element within parliament that is uh, given over to radical Islam. Uh, Much of the British population now, a very large percentage, claims to be Muslim. And while I'm not for a state religion at all, they they are impacting and affecting lawmaking in Great Britain. And here's what I'll say about that. I do believe it is true. There are tendencies that what happens in Western Europe eventually makes its way even as far as a trend into our country here in America. Uh, just this week, there's been the, the debate since Justice Kennedy has announced his, his retirement and the debate between a strict constructionist are constitutionalist as it comes to interpreting the Constitution as opposed to someone who believes that the Constitution of the United States is a shifting document. It's a changing, ever-evolving document. There have been times, in fact, Justice Kennedy has been a strong proponent of interpreting the American Constitution based on European law. And I, for one, although I'm not a judicial expert by any stretch of the imagination, I believe that's a grave mistake. But I believe that as our nation continues, I believe that we'll see more and more of that. And as that happens, I believe we'll see laws that come into being that are more adverse and more hostile to what we would call biblical Christianity. And if that happens, then you and I as Bible-believing Christians must make a decision. Who are we going to obey? 
He said, now wait a minute, preacher. I thought you said this morning we're to obey the civil authorities. We are. But there's a caveat. And the caveat is given to us here in Acts chapter 5. We're not just going to read verse 29. I'd like for you to go, please, all the way back to verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord, notice this, by night opened the prison doors, hallelujah, and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. (laughs) But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. And when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom thou put in prison, you put in prison, are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence. That's Peter and John. For they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, Peter and John, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly or immediately command you that ye should not teach in this name? Hold up. What's going on? Peter and John were preaching. They were teaching. They were ministering. Remember in chapter 4, they walked by the temple and they found the man that was lame and He was begging, and they said, Silver and gold have we none, but such as we have we give you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your bed and walk. And he got up and he walked. And the Bible says that he came running, leaping, and praising God. And because of that, they were arrested. They were put in the prison. The angel miraculously released them. And now here they are back in the temple. And you know what they're doing? They're they're preaching. They're teaching about Jesus. And the high priest said, didn't we tell you fellas to hush? Didn't we command you and straightway command you that you should not teach in this name? It's almost as if they were afraid or embarrassed to say the name of Jesus. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. Then Peter... And the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. It's interesting, the word obey there is a very specific term for obedience, and it literally goes a step further than what we would imagine. The word literally means to obey a ruler. One who has authority. And what Simon Peter is saying to these high priest, these priestly officials, these temple officials, he's saying, you know, when it comes down to it, we understand God wants us to obey civil authority. But when civil authority commands us to do something that violates the word of God and violates our conscience, 
and violates clear biblical principles and violates what God has told us to do, he said, then we are going to choose to obey God instead of obeying the civil authority. The word ought there is a very interesting word, and it signifies obligation. It signifies duty. He's not just saying, well, we prefer to obey. No, no, no. He's saying that we have an obligation upon us to obey God instead of man at that point. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, said that moral necessity left them no choice. What happens when the government goes bad? What happens when the civil authority is requiring or commanding Christians or citizens to do certain things that perhaps are contrary to the laws of God? I do believe, ladies and gentlemen, again, please know I'm not a pessimist, but I do believe if Jesus tarries that the day is coming when perhaps even my generation, certainly my boy's generation, that they will be threatened with jail and incarceration and maybe even something more severe for standing up and preaching the truth of the Bible. That's already happened in various parts of the world. It happens in Canada where there is legislation afoot to censor pastors and Bible teachers and their messages calling and naming certain sins as sin. They're being threatened with jail or being fined because they dare preach the whole counsel of God. And you know Certain things like speaking the truth about various lifestyles is called hate speech. Even in our country, there is an effort to make that a hate crime where if you preach against certain sins that a person exhibits in their lifestyle, then that's a hate crime by definition. And I want to say this, ladies and gentlemen. I do believe that we're going to have to choose. What do we do? What do we do? And by the way, the day will come around the world during the tribulation period. And we'll see this in just a moment. During the tribulation period, you do understand that it will be during the reign of the Antichrist. There will be individuals who get saved during the great tribulation. It'll be those who predominantly have not heard a clear presentation of the gospel. We know there'll be 144,000 Jews that get saved, give their lives to Christ, and they actually, 14,000 from each tribe, I'm sorry, 12,000 from each tribe, they'll actually go out and they'll be evangelists and they will literally, I believe during those years in the tribulation, that it'll be one of the greatest Days of missionary activity that the world has ever seen. That's what your Bible says in the book of the Revelation. And the day is going to come when all those who are still living at the end of the tribulation 
will be forced to take a number. We call it the number of the beast, also called the mark of the beast. They will not be able to buy, to sell, to trade, to barter, to exchange goods unless they take the number. Taking the number means that they're pledging allegiance to the Antichrist. So there will be individuals who legitimately are saved. They got saved during the tribulation. And they'll be forced to make a choice. Do you take the number and feed your family? Do you take the number and pledge allegiance to the Antichrist just to go along, to stay out of jail, to keep your head? Because those who do not take the number, ultimately they'll be executed. So what do they do? We'll find out in just a moment what they will choose. You see, civil disobedience is the active, professed refusal of a citizen to obey certain laws, demands, orders, or commands of a government or power. Brad Hughes with the Centennial Institute said, There are many biblical passages that contradict the popular teaching that Romans 13 should invoke compliance to the government by the Christian irrespective of the government's moral behavior. And what he's saying is this, is that there is a teaching out there that says that regardless of what the government is asking you to do, we are obligated as Christians to obey the government. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we see here in our passage tonight that that clearly is not the case. The Romans 13 passage is clearly not teaching that Christians should be blindly obedient to corrupt rulers when those corrupt rulers ask us to do things that are contrary to Scripture and contrary to our conscience. For instance, the Bible does not teach that the Germans should have been submissive to Hitler in his evil rule. We are instructed to disobey all tyrants, whether it's Hitler Stalin or any other tyrant that opposes biblical teaching. The Bible never teaches us to obey evil or to obey Satan. We must obey God and resist Satan. Romans 13 does teach that we should obey our leaders up to the point where their leadership does not violate God's law or what they're asking us doesn't violate, requiring of us doesn't violate God's law. It is a false teaching that Christians should never engage in civil disobedience. Much of the Old Testament has the prophets condemning evil government. God ordains governments, but God does not ordain their evil. Christians can obey governments that permit evil, listen carefully, but not those that command us to do evil. Do you understand what I just said? R.C. Sproul, a noted theologian who has recently passed away and gone to heaven, said this. Listen carefully. Christian ethicists have long debated whether or not it is ever legitimate 
for believers to defy the state. This is understandable since there are many passages, such as Romans 13, that seem to encourage submission to the ruling authorities no matter what. Paul, however, was not reflecting any sort of naivety when he instructed us to submit to the earthly authorities. After all, as one who was often imprisoned for preaching the gospel, he well knew that the state could very easily become an instrument of evil. His commands to obey the state, with all of the biblical injunctions to submit to the government, carry with them the assumption that our rulers are fulfilling the task that God has given them to preserve life and protect the right to private property. Now here's a statement I want you to listen to. Yet when the state forbids us to do something the Lord commands, or when the state commands us to do something the Lord forbids, believers must not submit to the decrees of the authorities. Christians are never given the license to sin, nor are we permitted to abandon the dictates of God in order to obey the orders of another human being. Does that make sense? Say amen if it does. Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, endorsed civil disobedience. He said we are to be subject to governmental power and do what it bids as long as it does not bind our conscience but legislates only concerning outward matters. But listen to what he said. This is very interesting. But if civil government invades the spiritual domain and constrains your conscience over which God only must preside and rule, we should not obey it at all, but rather lose our necks if need be. In 1525, just shortly after the Reformation began, William Tyndall broke the laws of England by publishing and then smuggling into England a translation of the New Testament that was not approved by the Roman Catholic Church. He was eventually arrested and executed for doing so. George Washington also understood that human government is a dangerous servant and a fearful master, he said. There's a man named Abraham Kuyper, a leading theologian of the 20th century who later became prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 1900s. He endorsed civil disobedience and he said this, listen carefully, When principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. There's a man, and I challenge you to read about his life, an amazing man. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is his name. One of the great theologians of the 20th century. He endorsed civil disobedience. It's interesting, as you study his life, you'll find out that Diedrich Bonhoeffer was part of a plot to try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. After realizing that no one virtually in the German government was going to stop Hitler, when it dawned on him and a handful of others what Adolf Hitler was doing with the genocide of the Jewish race, In fact, it's interesting that Hitler used Romans 13.1 to force church compliance with his evil plan. 
He removed the cross from churches and placed swastikas in their place. Only 700 of 18,000 German Protestant pastors refused to comply with Hitler's takeover of the church. And those 700 men were arrested. Many of them, most of them executed eventually. But here's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, and I quote, If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, bystanders, I can't as a Christian simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of his hands and try to avoid the catastrophe. He went on to say that silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And because of his actions in trying to salvage the Jewish race, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was executed. Francis Schaeffer, another of the great 20th century theologians, endorsed civil disobedience. Schaeffer said that when a ruler is contrary to the word of God, those who hold that office abrogate their authority and are not to be obeyed. And that includes the state, he said. The state is a delegated authority to punish evil and protect the good. And when it does the reverse, when it punishes the good and protects the evil, it has no proper authority, he said. It is then a usurped authority, and as such it becomes lawless and is tyranny itself. Another German anti-Nazi pastor, Martin Niemuller, after initially supporting Adolf Hitler early on in his rise to power because of Hitler's conservative and nationalistic message, Niemöller dramatically changed his attitude. As he began to witness the increasing horror and murderous intention of the Nazi regime, all the way back in 1936, he began to see this, and he, along with a group of Protestant ministers, they signed a petition which sharply criticized Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. The Nazi regime reacted with mass arrest and charges against almost all of those pastors, and there were many of them, because he began to show his opposition opposition to the Nazi state control of the churches, Niemöller was imprisoned in two different concentration camps, Sachsenhausen and Dachau. He narrowly escaped execution after his imprisonment. He expressed his deep regret about not having done more or done, in his words, enough to help the victims of the Nazi regime. He turned away from those nationalistic beliefs and it was one of the initiators in what is called the Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt, which was a declaration, it was a document that was issued in October of 1945 after the war by the Evangelical Church of Germany in which it openly confessed their own guilt for not opposing the Nazis in the Third Reich. And here's what Niemuller wrote. And I want you to listen carefully what he said. It's very telling. He f- said, first, they came for the socialist. 
And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one else to speak out. When once visited in jail by another pastor, the visiting pastor remarked, that all Niemuller had to do in order to be set free is just promise that he would be silent about the Nazi party. Just be quiet, Martin, and they'll let you go free. And so continued the visitor, why are you still in jail, he said. To which Niemuller replied, why are you not in jail? You see, there have been God's people all through the ages who have realized that there may come a point in time in a nation's life when God's people have to make the unfortunate but the clear decision to either obey the state or obey God and to suffer the consequences in doing so. You see, there are instances of legitimate civil disobedience even in Scripture. We see in Exodus 1, 15 through 18, that the Hebrew midwives disobeyed the law, demanding that they kill all the male Hebrew babies. In 1 Kings 18, 4, Obadiah hid 100 prophets from Jezebel while she was on a murderous rampage. In Esther chapter 4 verse 16 and chapter 5 verse 1, facing the genocide and the annihilation of the Jewish people, Esther disobeyed the law of the king by coming into his presence without being summoned first in order to plead for the king's intervention. Daniel 3 verses 8 through 12, we see the three Hebrew young men refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol and were consequently thrown into the fiery furnace. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, as we talked about Wednesday night, and we'll finish talking about this coming Tuesday night, Daniel defied the king's decree regarding prayer. In Mark 6, 18, John the Baptist publicly rebuked Herod, the king, the governor, for his adultery. In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, Peter and John were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were threatened with further imprisonment simply for preaching the gospel. And in Revelation 13, 13, those who are truly followers of Christ during the tribulation will refuse the order of the Antichrist to take the mark of the beast. What I'm simply saying, ladies and gentlemen, All through this book and all through church history, there have been men and women who have been willing, if necessary, to pay the ultimate price in fulfilling God's word and not violating their conscience. That's called civil disobedience. So as we think about these instances, particularly these ones in Scripture, and that's that's what carries weight. Scripture always trumps history. It's 
So let's learn from these examples. Each of these examples has four elements in common. First, there was a direct and specific conflict between God's law and man's law. In other words, in order to be obedient to God's law, they had to violate man's law or vice versa. Second, in disobeying the human law, they did so without arrogance or selfish motivation. And ladies and gentlemen, that's key. You cannot biblically engage in civil disobedience if your attitude is motivated by self or by a bad negative spirit. You cannot do it and honor God. You do not see that in any of these examples in Scripture. You see submission. You see even a humility of mind even when they're disobeying the civil authority. Third, In choosing to obey God's higher law, the lawbreakers must accept the consequences of their disobedience. You just have to know that there are going to be consequences. And you need to be willing ahead of time to go ahead and cross that bridge and face that if necessary. And then number four. In all of these instances, God honored their civil disobedience. And that's the end goal. We want Jesus to be pleased. Now let me give you, in conclusion, some action steps to take and to ponder. First of all, it's incumbent on all of us that we first of all know our Bibles and know the issues. Know your Bible and know the issues. Do you know your Bible well enough to be able to evaluate whether or not you're being pressured or commanded to violate Scripture? We must pray, 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 pray for discernment and clear direction by the Holy Spirit of God. Number two, I'd say this. Obey civil authority until there is biblical justification for refusing to do so. <laughs> Please don't leave out of here tonight and say, well, bless God, I ain't buckling my seatbelt. I ain't driving 55. Well, why not? Well, because I'm against it, and I've got justification for being against it. Well, you probably don't have biblical justification for being against it. Along those lines, I would challenge us to stay engaged in the political process. Do not withdraw, listen, do not withdraw from the political process. And again, this isn't a sermon on voting, but vote. Hey, we don't have a right to say anything if we don't vote, right? Stay engaged. Know what candidates believe. Don't withdraw. Vote. Vote principle. Vote a sanctified, Holy Spirit-driven conscience. But vote. Let me give you this next one. And this is important. Because I think I've met and you've met some individuals like this. They're good people. But be careful. Refuse to be controversial just for controversy's sake. 
ever met anybody like that? I, I, now, I know some preachers like that. It doesn't matter what it is, but they're going to work something controversial into every sermon. And they're going to tick off half the crowd some way or another, and they're going to feel good about doing it. I've never understood that. Some people are just wired like that. But don't be controversial just to be controversial. Number five, above all else. Or number four, whatever I'm on. Maintain priority allegiance to the Lord. I mean first and foremost. Let it be clearly known and settled in your heart that you pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God above anyone else and anything else. Next, if at all possible, stand peacefully. Stand peacefully. Again, there's no justification. There's no justification for being a jerk. Take your stand, but stand with the right disposition. You see, here's what I've learned, and, and you've learned too, that most people will offer you respect You can stand on a position if you have the right disposition. And I threw this in there. This isn't in the notes or in the script. But you know what we ought to do? Pray for the conversion of the civil authorities. I want to ask you a question, and I'm not going to mention specific names because I don't have to. But when you, when you, when it is an election cycle and an election season, do you ever pray for the conversion of the candidate that you don't like? Instead of praying that they'll be defeated, and I'm not saying it's not, it's not okay to do that, but long before you start praying against them, when's the last time you prayed for them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me give you this one. Manifest an excellent spirit. Come back Tuesday night and we'll finish that. And then number nine, and we're going to pray. Continue to be salt and light, but refuse to be salty. Do you understand what I mean by that? Refuse to be salty. (laughs) And I'm talking about with your attitude. And with your tongue, and with your talk, and with your speech. Be salt and light, but refuse to be salty, and refuse to be a lightning rod. A lightning rod of controversy, a lightning rod for contention. (laughs) You can stand, and you can hold the right position. But just make sure you keep the right disposition. Let's pray together tonight.